been preaching in the book of Hosea on Sunday night, so I'd invite your attention there. We'll be looking at Hosea chapter 4. I told you when we began this series that uh, in considering it, analyzing the book, looking it over, realizing that the prophets were preachers in the Old Testament, sometimes they gave prophecy that was about the future. Sometimes they gave prophecy, messages that were from God that related directly and specifically to the times. Sometimes those things got all jumbled up together. And that's one of the great uh, uh, efforts that we all have uh, because sometimes the prophets were speaking of that particular moment in time, but God the Holy Spirit was looking far ahead at a time that there was no way for them to know anything about. Even in the New Testament era, Uh, This aspect of the prophets was known. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch. When he asked Philip, what was he reading? Isaiah 53. Does the prophet speak of himself or of some other man? You see, they, they understood that the prophets sometimes gave a message that related directly to the people and the situations that were going on in that time, in that place. And sometimes they spoke yes of themselves in their own experiences. But God worked through that sometimes to speak messages that went far off into the future, the prophets. And so there were eight different messages that Hosea gave. And these messages uh, uh, did not uh, correspond to the chapter numbers. Uh, The first message was God's dysfunctional family. And it was about Hosea and his relationship with his wife, Gomer, their children. And when he got to the end of chapter 3 and was able to put a period on that message, I I believe Hosea breathed a big sigh of relief. Man, I'm, I'm glad. Because God had worked so that Hosea's life was his message. His message was his life. And it was a message that God said would be for many, many days. So there was an element of the future as well in a roving into that message. Then the second message then that Hosea gives is the one that uh, brings God as a prosecuting attorney, if you will, as he establishes a case against his people, Israel. We pick up the narrative in verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of thy God, I also will forget thy children. Hmm. I will reject you from being priest. So the first part of this message as God entered into that courtroom scene, he read an indictment against the people. And he went into detail about what they were doing. You see this begin in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. So God brings an indictment against the people. And we notice that while God loves us just the way we are, He loves us too much to leave us like that. And God in His love for us then has to sometimes confront us in our sin. And the issues that God raised with Israel so long ago, He could just as easily be raising with the United States of America today. And we see that over and over again in the prophets. Why is it that way? Because people 
are the same as we've always been. It, it doesn't change a whole lot. Sin is still sin. The devil's still the devil. And uh, the opposition against God and against God's truth, and when people listen to the opposition, uh, that's still real. When people listen to that opposition and they follow the path, then it leads them down a predictable path. Generations have gone through it. Jesus talked about it. There's a broad gate that leads to what? Destruction. And many, many, there be that find it. Yeah. People had rejected God's truth to the point that they had lost their sense of right and wrong. They became self-centered. They had no compassion, no concern for others. They lost their perception of who God is. And violence and vice then filled their land. The people became vile and vicious. God spelled out how corrupt their lives were. How it affected their entire nation. So the first indictment that God read in this courtroom scene as he... Uh, in verse 1 says, uh, I'm going to bring a charge against you. And the first ones he brought charges against were the people. Tonight we see the second group that God brings charges against, and that is the priests. They're spiritual leaders. And if the people had rejected God's truth, and they had, the priests were guilty of restraining God's truth. And you'll see that in our text in verses 6 through 10. Uh, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry but not increase. Because they have ceased obeying the word of the Lord. They were restraining God's truth. One of the characteristics you find throughout Scripture is that God has always provided spiritual leaders for His people. Always. Over and over and over again in Scripture, God calls His people sheep. And that's not altogether a flattering thing when God calls a sheep, but uh, He does. Uh, we are the sheep of His pasture. If I've got to be a sheep, I want to be a sheep in God's pasture. Anybody else here tonight? Yeah. I'm a sheep, and I'm a sheep in God's pasture. And because of that, uh, because we are a part of His flock, and He owns us, and He's responsible for us, therefore He gives us shepherds, spiritual leaders, priests, to lead us. One of their primary responsibilities is to nourish them, to see that the sheep are well fed. You might think then tonight that y'all could take a break uh, because I'm going to preach to preachers here and there's not a whole lot of us here tonight, Uh, maybe more than we know right now, but uh, um, you never know who God is working on and calling. I believe God's still calling people to preach. Do y'all believe that? Jesus told us to pray the Lord of the harvest, and we need it. The numbers of students in seminaries right now across our work and across this country is staggeringly low. Staggeringly low. 
But the other side of this is still true. Any person who has been elected or selected to a position in this church holds a position of spiritual leadership. You are a spiritual leader to somebody. If you're a parent, if you're a spouse, if you teach a class, if you work in Awana, you serve down here in the learning center, if you work on a committee, then you are in a position of spiritual leadership. If you're a Christian and you have friends that don't know Christ or are new believers, then you're in a position of spiritual leaders. A spiritual leader can be defined as a person who's in a God-given position enabling them to influence others for the kingdom. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. To the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. We're talking about being a spiritual leader and how that God has a message in this passage. Yes, to his priests, to spiritual leaders. But we also need to think about our role of spiritual leadership. You might not be a God-called pastor. God might not have called you to be a missionary. But if you're a believer, then you're in a position of influence. If you hold a position in this church, you're in a position of influence. And this passage here in 2 Corinthians describes this as a fragrance or aroma through us that God is diffusing the aroma, the fragrance of Christ. You know, the sense of smell is an amazing sensory ability that we all have. Humans tend to rely more on sight and sound than on smell, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a sense of smell, as is the case biologically with all the other species, all the other creatures that God made that are mammals. Uh, the female always has the highest developed sense of smell. Always. Always. Uh, so guys, if your wife tells you she smells something, listen. She does. Uh, interestingly, the sense of smell is located next to the part of the brain that triggers the emotions. And that's why that uh, smells can trigger very strong emotions, whether attractive or repulsive you know that feeling, perhaps, when you enter into a place that has a fragrance all its own. Maybe it's an old church building you hadn't been to for many years, but you walk back in there, and you know it's funny. Churches still smell like they always did. Uh, Fifty years can go by. You go back to them, still smells the same. And just smelling that smell, that brings back all of those memories, positive or negative. That's powerful influence of, of smell. Paul uses that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 to describe our ability to influence others. We diffuse the aroma of Christ. You see, the question is not, am I an influence of Christ for Christ? The question is, what kind? What kind? We can be a positive influence on others, or we can be a negative influence on others. Which one? But our passage in Hosea, with that uh, effort on my part to broaden our audience just a little bit, so that we could all see that we do have something to gain from these passages, we go back to its primary meaning. 
God was speaking to the spiritual leaders of the nation. And he reads out a horrible indictment. He describes how his people did not know him. And the reason they did not know him is they did not have a real and vibrant relationship with God. Regardless of what else may go on, regardless of what else may happen, what else the situation is, what else is going on in the culture, regardless, ultimately, if a person doesn't know God, they have made their own choice. And they're responsible for the choice they've made. They chose not to know God. They rejected God. They rejected God's truth. But then God tells them, yep, but there's something else here. The main reason why the people didn't know God was because the priests didn't know God. One writer put it this way, you can't lead someone into something you don't know how to get to yourself. You can't do that any more than you can come back from somewhere you've never been. You can't lead someone into something that you don't have yourself. That's what Jesus was saying when he talked about the blind leading the blind. Remember that passage? The blind leading the blind. So the first way that the priests were restraining or holding back the truth of God, the people had rejected God's truth, the priests were restraining it is that they ignored their own spiritual need for God, their own spiritual development. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to shepherd. We could read that feed, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. But the first responsibility the faithful shepherd has is to nurture his own spiritual development. It's one of the most important things that any pastor can do for the benefit of the blessing of his church, and that is to make sure that he, in this case I, maintain my own spiritual development and continue growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first qualification of spiritual leadership. These people neglected their own spiritual life, and the result of that was that God removed His anointing from them. He said, I will reject you from being priest, notice, for me. I will reject you from being priest for me, God said. Why? Because they had neglected their own spiritual development. They themselves did not know God. They were turning away from God themselves. And because of that, God said, he didn't say they're no longer being a priest. They wouldn't be a priest for God. That's a distinction that we need to recognize carefully. What that means is that God's power would not be flowing through them. It didn't mean they wouldn't have a position. In modern culture, any church can put any person in a position of being a pastor and call him a pastor and put him behind this sacred desk. They can do that. It may not even be a him. It may be a her. They can do that. They're doing it all over this country. And so they may carry the title of a pastor and have people call them pastor. They might uh, have that title and that name and that reputation, but that is no guarantee that they are God's pastor. Do you understand? A pastor for God. I'll, I'll, I'll make you not a pastor. I'll reject you from being priest for me. It meant simply that God would not work in them or through them as He intends to do. 
God's power would not flow through them. The second way then that the priests were restraining the word was by forgetting it. Because, verse 6, you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me, I will change their glory into shame. Now, don't think that just because God has rejected a priest that he won't be uh, leading a growing congregation. <laughs> they might be increasing, but they'll be increasing in their sin and then a rejection of God. The word forget in this passage carries the idea of ignore, which tells us that these spiritual leaders made a deliberate choice to turn away from proclaiming and practicing God's word. In that glorious passage where Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders again in Acts chapter 20, he said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I've held nothing back, he would say. And that's the heart of a faithful pastor, a man that's committed to declaring God's word to God's people. All of it. All of it. He doesn't peddle it. He doesn't make it acceptable. He's not up there to soft sell it. He doesn't hold it back. He shoots it straight. Forcefully and powerfully. Stands before God's people and says, Thus saith the Lord God. <laughs> if you don't like it, then get on your knees till you do. This is God's word. If it was my word, it wouldn't amount to anything. But if it's God's word, and we have that commitment to preach the word because it's what God told us to do, and we know that it is powerful, it is a powerful thing. When God's word is preached by somebody God has called to do it and the Holy Spirit uses it and works on it, I, I believe in the power of preaching the word of God. But I stand in a world where so many preachers don't believe that way. Guess what? That's nothing new. It was that way in Hosea's day. They had abandoned the preaching of the word of God. They'd made a deliberate choice not to do it anymore. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word, 2 Timothy 4, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. What's that mean? That means keep on doing it. Don't quit. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And the rest of that verse does not say, so since they're not going to endure sound doctrine, you go out and get you a few poems and a few fancy stories and start preaching a lot of human interest stuff. That's not what that passage says. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. So what do you do? Give it to them anyway. <laughs> Give them more of it. You get them to sit down and preach it longer to them. <laughs> you want shorter sermons? <laughs> the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they'll turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So what do you do, Timothy? Preach the word. Keep doing it. Whether people want it or not, whether it's in season or out of season, convince them, rebuke them, instruct them with all patience and teaching. Keep doing it. Whether they respond or don't respond, whether they like it or don't like it, preach it. Because when a spiritual leader abandons the preaching of the truth, when he begins to cater to the whims of the people or cave to the desires of the culture, when the message is buried, 
by the likes and dislikes of people, there's something that's going to happen. God said it right here. He says, preachers, when you forget my word, I'll forget to bless you. That's what God said. When you forget me, I'll forget your children. I'll forget what you're doing. I'll, I'll not be blessing it. Why? Because when people don't know the truth of God, they will invariably squander the blessings of God, whatever God would give them, to turn away from Him and into sin. Remember James chapter 4, where God says, You have not because you ask not, and you ask and receive not. Why? Because you ask amiss to consume it on your own lust. You see, people who don't know God's truth, if God blesses them in that condition, all they're going to do is take the blessings of God and squander them. When you read the book of Hosea, we'll see it very clearly in Hosea's message. God wants to bless us. He wants to bless us more than we want to be blessed. But God is not an enabler. He never has been. He's still not. So the priests were restraining the word of God, first of all, because... They had neglected their own spiritual development. Secondly, then, they were forgetting about the Word of God and the power. They were making a deliberate choice to turn away from the Word of God and from proclaiming the truth of God. And the third way, then, the priest restrained the Word was by entering into the sins of the people. Verse 8, they eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry but not increase because they have ceased obeying the Lord. When we read this passage and we think about what we've heard all our lives, we might think God, that, God got that backwards. Because uh, I was told and I've heard all my life, it's always going to be like preacher, like people. That's what I've heard. But that's not what God said. God turned it around. Like people, like priests. God spelled that out for us when he called the prophet Ezekiel. And when he sent Ezekiel down to preach to these people, he said, you know, several things about them. He said they're impudent. That means they're hard-headed. And they're rebellious. That means they're hard-hearted. So he told them, Ezekiel, I'm sending you to a hard-headed hard-hearted people. And you know what God did for Ezekiel? He said, I'm going to give you a head like a flintstone. I'm sending you to a hard-headed people, so you're going to have to be a hard-headed preacher. Yeah. That explains a lot, doesn't it? But you know, God warned him. As he said over and over again, my people are rebellious. These are rebellious people. Ezekiel, by the way, have I told you, my people are rebellious. Hey, Ezekiel, my people are rebellious. These folks I'm sending you to, Ezekiel, they're rebellious. You know what God said to him? Don't you be like them. Don't you rebel against me. You see, it's hard to pastor rebellious people without becoming rebellious. It's hard to pastor bitter people without becoming bitter. It's hard to pastor people who are eating up sin and not be inclined to, to join them in their sin. 
in a practical way, how this plays out is that God sends them a spiritual leader to lead them out of their sins, and instead, they end up dragging him into it. And if that can play out for pastors, let's understand that can play out for all of us. You know what it's like. You saw that happen on the playground when you got around those kids that your mama told you you didn't need to be playing with. And why? Because they always got you in trouble. You thought you would get them out of it, maybe. But they didn't. You know some people. You've got friends, maybe. And I've, I've, I've had friends like this in my life. That, you know, I, I could be doing pretty good. But I get around this person, it's like I'd become somebody else. Maybe get a whole new vocabulary. It can happen. We know what it's like to try to help people out of their sins and help people. That's our goal. But then we get sucked into the same thing that they're doing. It's bad when it happens to anybody. It's a catastrophe when it happens to spiritual leaders. God pronounced two aspects of judgment on this. He said, first, God would take away their satisfaction of their sins. They didn't say He could keep them from sinning, but He did say He could keep them from sinning and enjoying it. They eat up the sin of my people, so I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds, for they shall eat, but not have enough. You know, that's the way sin is. Doesn't matter how much of it you take in, it always leads you hungry for more. There's a great yawning because it never satisfies. You can poke all the sin in the hole in your life that you can get, but it will never fill up the hole. It just makes it bigger. And then God would take away their fruitfulness. They would commit harlotry, but there would be no profit from it. Such a life as this cannot bear fruit. It is, that is, and, and not, the, not the kind of fruit that God expected from them. Not spiritual fruit. They might say, well, you know, God may not bless. So, so what? I'll, I'll make things happen. I'm a mover and shaker, so I'll move and shake. That was a Samson plan. That's what we call it. Remember when Samson went out after he got a haircut? I don't know what it meant. The Bible said Samson would go out and shake himself. I hope God's got that on video. I, I want to. What that? I don't know. What do you do? Just go out and shake. You know, kind of. I, I, that's the way I picture it. He just, he, Samson used to shake, and them Philistines would take off a running. Man, that, Samson fixing to get after you. You better go. I don't know where that guy gets his power. He's some scrawny looking fellow, but what a man he's. Samson's up there shaking. We better get gone. Samson went out there and shook himself like he had before. Nothing happened. The Philistines didn't run. Before the day was over with, Samson was blind and bound. And he had spent many a year under the blinding, binding power of sin. It's the way sin works. It's the way it's always worked. God says, I'll take away your fruitfulness. I'll take away your power. We can't think that sin is going to bless us. It won't. That we can still have a good time and we can make it on our own. We can't. We can't. 
So in the first part of this message, then God addressed himself to the people. And now we see God's indictment against the priest. The next one we can all enjoy because God turns his guns on the third group. And that's the politicians. <laughs> Amen. Go up and round us up a few and bring them in. I want to preach to them next week. Uh, you say, well, preacher, you should have brought some preachers here tonight. I know, I know. I did my best. No, I'm just kidding. Kind of, mostly kidding. God brings his indictment then against the political leaders of the land. Before we leave this part of Hosea's message, let's look at God's concluding remarks, if you will, the summary of his indictment against the priest. Verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. Uh, I love the uh, NLT translation of, of that passage. It said, wine, women, and song have robbed my people of their brains. Uh, the word heart could be translated discernment as in the ability to discern. And we could say that Hosea chapter 4 and verse 11 is kind of an Old Testament version of that old commercial that some of you aren't old enough to have seen. This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Sexual promiscuity, alcohol, and drugs will destroy your brain. But even worse, it will destroy your heart. When you think about this, you may think about the people who are walking around our community and every community in the state of Arkansas. There's a big hole where their heart should be, not literally, I'm talking metaphorically here. No matter how much sex they go after, no matter how much alcohol they drink, no matter how many drugs they take, the hole in their heart never goes away. There's something missing in their life. It is agonizing. It eats them away. And it keeps getting bigger. You may be thinking of some old burned out, used up drug addict puttering along the sidewalk that doesn't even know where he or she is. And that might qualify. But you could just easily be considering a bright young man or a beautiful young wo woman whose heart has been eaten away by sin. Sexual promiscuity and alcohol and the partying crowd that go along with it will eat away your heart. goes on then and describes him worshiping false gods on the hills and in the groves and how their daughters and their, and their brides would end up committing sexual sins in those groves. But God didn't say he would punish the daughters and the wives for committing these sins. The men, you see, were guilty as well. There's no double standard with God. God expects girls to be sexually pure, but he expects young boys to be the same way. So God gives a warning to Judah. Now remember Hosea is preaching in the northern kingdom, Israel, but he uses Hosea then to, to preach to Judah. And it's interesting what God told them to do in verse 17. Ephraim has joined the idols. Let him alone. Those words, let him alone, echo like clods falling on the coffin of a nation. This is the harshest form of judgment that God can deliver. Leave him alone. To Judah, it was a statement that they needed to learn from Israel's sins and stay away from them. 
God was not sending Judah to go up to Israel to preach to them. Notice that. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him go. I have to tell you tonight, sometimes I wonder if God would not make that statement about the United States of America. If he hasn't already, there will come a time when he will. Let him go. There's no turning back. Do you understand how serious that is? You say, God would never say that. Read Romans 1. Three times. God gave them up. Then we remember one of the preeminent doctrines of the New Testament is the priesthood of the believer. That means that in Christ we're all made priests. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 through 5, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that God's word to the priest through Hosea is in a way God's word to all of us as New Testament believers. That means tonight we can take this word for all of us. Number one, we need to carefully nurture our own spiritual development. Why? Because all of us are a spiritual leader to somebody. Somebody is watching you. Nurture your own spiritual development. Faithfully study and, yes, proclaim God's Word. Never give up on it. Never abandon it. Get it out there. The Word of God is powerful. It does what God intends for it to do. It's the one thing that we can do that God promised will not return unto Him void, but it will accomplish the thing for which He sends it. That's the Word of God. Get it out there. And we will, by that commitment to our truth, by developing our own spiritual and, and nurturing our own spiritual development, by maintaining our commitment then to the Word of God, we will, by that, avoid being drawn into the sins of the very people that God intends for us to help. It takes spiritual strength to be involved in this work. But the possibility on the other side is devastating for a nation. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. Let's all take a moment tonight to reflect on our own position in, a, in God's efforts and God's work, God's kingdom work and God's kingdom agenda. We've all got a place. We've all got a spot. Let's see to it that we fill it faithfully and fulfill it for the glory of God and for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Let's stand together, please.